Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And as you're doing that, um, I have been encouraging you all along since we've been in Romans, low this uh, month, uh, year and a half, almost a month and a half, year and a half that we've been in Romans. I've been encouraging, encouraging you to be reading it, to be um, working through Romans and thinking about it and um, memorizing and studying Romans. And those of you who have been doing that or who are otherwise familiar with Romans are aware of the fact that we are approaching chapter 9 and 10 and 11. And even the end of chapter 8 has some uh, uh, deep theological waters that we will be approaching. And that time is coming shortly. And so I didn't want to uh, just jump directly into it. I want to uh, spend some time, first of all, alerting you that that's coming if you weren't thinking about that. Uh, we've got some some difficult questions regarding the sovereignty of God and salvation and man's will and how those things work together. And Paul is going to spend quite a bit of time in these next uh, few paragraphs and chapters speaking on that topic. And so uh, next week we will actually take a break from the book of Romans and we will uh, go to a different passage that will give us guidance on how to think about difficult theological topics, difficult biblical topics. And so next week we will actually be in Deuteronomy uh, 29, 29 and talking about that, uh, that verse and some guidance that it can, it can give us because we want to take seriously what God says in his word. We want to think well about it. We want to uh, come to the conclusion that God would have us come to from his word. And so uh, next week we will be not in Romans, but in Deuteronomy instead. So, um, and then after that, the intention is to come back uh, and pick up where we've left off in Romans. Today we're going to go verses 18 through 27. And then when we come back together in Romans, then we will uh, pick up in verse 28, very famous verse, uh, one that's very near and dear to all of us, I'm sure. And uh, of course, it's related to the passage that we're talking about today. But uh, that's, the, that's where we're going. That's so you can be preparing yourself and be thinking about these topics and, uh, and how we're going to think about them together. But for today, we are back in Romans 8, and we're going to cover verses 18 through 27. So let's, let's, uh, let me read that to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we gladly come to you this morning. You, the unchangeable one, not caught off guard by pandemics or riots or evil in the world, not thrown off your plan, not altering your schedule, not having to jump through hoops. You, God of all things, who created us and created all things, the one who sustains us, we come to you and and find comfort and peace in coming to you. Thank you that you have given us your word. You've communicated yourself to us and we have it in our own language, in our own hands, and we can sit here together and we can learn from your word particularly as we think today about the chaos of this world, evil that goes on in all its forms, and here we are. And sometimes we suffer as a result of it. We personally or those near us. How do we deal with suffering? How can we find encouragement in the midst of this crazy world where there is evil out there? And what's worse, there's, there's evil we carry around with us. So how should we proceed? How can we find comfort? How can we find encouragement? How can we understand where we are in this creation that has fallen? So we come to your word today, Father, and we ask that you would be at work by your spirit in us to help us understand what you have spoken to us in your word in Romans chapter 8. We submit to you. We ask that you would be at work by your spirit in our hearts. Help us not to be dwelling on what has gone on in these last days and weeks and months. Nor worried about what will come. So I pray that you would work in us through the proclamation of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul was a man who understood suffering. If you've read through the book of Acts or you've read some of Paul's descriptions about his own ministry and the things he had gone through, he understood suffering. And he he understood it um, so well and in such a biblical way that he could write to us to tell us to rejoice in suffering. That that takes a degree of uh, understanding of God and His Word for him to be able to tell us to rejoice in our suffering. And, and that carries even more weight when you remember that Paul had endured the kind of suffering that at one time drove him to cry out to God three times to take away his suffering, to take away that thorn in the flesh. So he, he understood, not just in some biblical Sunday school way of, oh, we should rejoice in suffering. He himself knew pain He knew suffering, suffering of the kind that would cause him to beg the Lord three times to take it away from him. And so Paul was acquainted with suffering. And when someone acquainted with suffering the way Paul was acquainted with suffering says the words that we read in verse 18, we should sit up and take notice. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he had suffered, 
The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So here was a man who understood what he was talking about. He understood and had experienced suffering, and yet he can say in verse 18, it doesn't even compare. It's not even on the same chart as the glory to be revealed. As we work through our passage today, we're going to notice a repeated theme, a repeated word of groaning. Groaning. And of course, if we're talking about a passage that is discussing suffering, you would expect it to talk about groaning. But what you might not expect and what what surprised me as I was reading through this is not the connection between suffering and groaning, but the connection this passage makes between groaning and hope. Look at verses 19 through 22. We see that creation groans. And actually, before we read them, I want to give us a little bit of a a replay, kind of of, uh, what has gone on in the Bible, that creation is groaning. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God created this world. He created all of creation. And then what did He do? He made man in His image and placed Him there in the garden to function as his vice regent, to function as his prince over creation. He was to be his steward or his deputy or his vice regent over the land, over all of creation. Adam was created and was told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and rule over it, subdue it, have dominion over all of creation. That was the command given at the end of Genesis 1 and You remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve, though they've been given dominion over creation, they they were supposed to be the lords of creation, the prince over all things. Instead, a serpent, part of creation, sneaks into the garden, lies to the woman about what God is like, about what God's word is like. And Adam and Eve follow the advice, follow the counsel, follow the direction of the creature over whom they were to have dominion. And that creature advised them and led them to rebel against their creator. The one they were to worship, to believe, to trust, to give their lives to. Instead, they rebel against him and they follow the word of the liar, of the creature, of the serpent. And so they, they fall into sin. And if you remember, right after that rebellion, there were curses given. God comes on the scene and he gives curses and he, he curses the serpent and then he curses the woman and then he curses the man. And does he stop there? No, he keeps going. He curses all of creation. All of creation. And so we see that creation groans. Why, why does the created order groan? Well, because creation is in futility. From the beginning, all of creation, from that first moment of sin, from that first verdict given of of guilty and cursed, all of creation has been cursed. And so now the ground doesn't bring forth the beauty like it should and the vegetation like it should and the produce like it should. Instead, it brings forth thorns and thistles. You can make food come from it, but it doesn't do like it should. It was intended to have performed in a very different way, and yet it doesn't. And so what originally would have been a glorious and wonderful and worshipful job 
pure and enjoyable of gardening, of, of creating, uh, bringing forth fr- food from the garden, now it turns into hard work. And yeah, there's joy connected with it. And it can be very enjoyable, but there's frustration. You've got to go weed. You've got to put in extra work. The crop doesn't come in like it should. And alkali does its thing and everything else that goes on in Fallon happens to your crop. And so creation is in futility. It was subjected to futility. There's frustration. There's hardship of living in this fallen world. And it's not just experienced by man. It's experienced by animals as well. All of creation is in futility. Animals often go hungry. They might die of thirst. Or maybe storms and floods come in and destroy. Drought kills. There is great beauty in creation. And there's great tragedy in creation. I grew up watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And that was one of my favorite shows. And, and they would take you somewhere in the world and they watch animals and, and all this kind of stuff. And it seemed like they're, uh, more often than not, they would end up following some little zebra, a baby zebra who had wandered away from the rest of the herd and, and chasing butterflies or whatever he was doing. And, and a cute little guy and the camera would follow it along. And, and, oh, he's cute and he's fun to watch and he's stumbling around. He's helpless. And then the camera would also be following some, some starving predator sneaking through the grass and, uh, and, and stalking this, this baby. And so I would, you know, wonder a couple things at that time. First of all, of course, I'm wondering, is the zebra going to be dinner? Or is, is the zebra going to live and make it back to mom and dad and to the rest of the herd? Or is he going to get eaten? And the second question I would always wonder is, why didn't the camera guy go and save the zebra? That's what I would do. You know, I would go and deliver this thing. And of course, that wasn't what their goal was. But the the message that was coming across, the message that was being conveyed was that there was an ultimatum happening. It was either or in this situation. Either the zebra was going to become dinner and thus the zebra dies. And then the predator is strengthened. The predator lives on or the zebra gets away and the predator goes hungry and probably dies of starvation. So... There's beauty in nature. There's beauty in creation. And there's hardship. And there's suffering. And there's tragedy in nature. And there will come a time when there's peace in all of this creation, when everything functions together the way it ought to. But for the time being, creation is subjected to futility. And if we ask why, if we ask what the cause is, we don't have to look beyond our nose. Man is the cause for creation being subjected to futility man was to subdue and he was to rule over creation he was the vice regent he was the one to reign he was the prince that god had put there to reign over all things he was to name the animals to show the authority that he had over the animals he was to keep the garden and keep it functioning in a way that it should so that it was god honoring and functioning well the whole created order was put into the care of man so when adam fell the consequences of his fall didn't just affect him or his wife. It affected all of creation. When the vice regent fell and was corrupted, the entire natural order fell and was corrupted. So man is the cause. But we see something very surprising. We see that childbirth is the given solution. Look at verse 20. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth is the solution. Creation was subjected to futility because God had determined that the fall of the vice regent, the fall of his image, the fall of man would result in all of creation being subjected to that same futility. But that wasn't the death blow. That wasn't the final verdict. There was hope given. There was an expectation that there would be deliverance. There was a hope given that there would be a time when this futility would be lifted. And if you remember reading through Genesis 3, you have this, the sin happen, the rebellion happens, the fall. You have the judgment given. And even during the, pronoun- the pronouncement of the judgment, you have God saying this to the serpent, the offspring of the woman will crush your head at the cost of his own heel. The cost of his own bruised heel. So even there at the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, you have this first promise that this is not the end. The story is not over. Yes, there's futility. There's fallenness. But there's going to come a victory. There's going to come a deliverer. There's going to come one who's the seed of the woman who's going to have victory over the serpent. Now in that story, and if we were to read no farther than Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we would think that it's a battle between God and this serpent or between the seed of the woman and this serpent just over this particular issue, which one's going to live, which one's going to die. But of course, as we read the Bible, we see much more enter the picture. We see that actually all of the offspring of Adam and Eve follow in their, in their place of sin. They were born into sin. And we gladly follow along with sin of our own, that we are rebellious, just like Adam and Eve ended up being rebellious. And so this, this sin, which God had said in the beginning, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And they ate of the fruit of that tree, and they surely died. And we, their offspring, are born dead. We bear the consequences of that. The sin The wages of sin is death, and we have shown that in our own lives. And so we see that that promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent is not just about a battle between two people or two entities. There's much more at stake that actually you see the seed of the woman who is Jesus come on to the picture and where Adam sinned and broke the law and inherits uh, death for himself and passes that on to all of his offspring, Jesus comes in as the second Adam. And he bears that penalty. He dies in the place of all of his own to pay the penalty for their sins. More than that, where Adam disobeyed, Jesus comes on the scene, the second Adam, and he obeys all of the will of God so that we see him obeying. And so it's much more than just who's going to win, Jesus or the serpent. Jesus is certainly going to win. The seed of the woman is going to win. But in doing so, he's going to redeem a people for his own possession. He's going to pay the penalty for their sin. And he's going to obey in their stead where they have been disobedient. So that by faith in Christ, we have that forgiveness. So that we have that curse taken away. We have that penalty taken away so that we stand before God, right before him, because 
of what Christ has done. Only. It doesn't come all at once, does it? Redemption doesn't happen in its entirety all at one time, does it? I mean, you think about... You think about your own life, that, that your inner man, if you're in Christ, your inner man has been re- renewed. He's been made alive. What about your outer man? What about your body? What about the rest of you? Well, the rest of you, the, the outer man, as it were, will not be <clears throat> renewed and, and made sinless and brought into perfection until the resurrection. And until then, the whole creation suffers under the broken rule of a broken ruler. Because we are still the vice regents on this earth. And we are doing a poor job. And so, we see that there is suffering in this world. We see that the creation groans, subjected to futility because of man. But the solution is this childbirth that's expected. First, the child Jesus being born. That's the start of the whole thing. He's the one who accomplishes it. But then what does he do? He redeems a people. We're redeemed in, in, in a sense, in our inner man, fully redeemed right now. But we won't see the results of that in our outer man until, until resurrection, until we receive those glorified bodies. Until that time, creation groans and it waits. In verses 23 through 25, we groan, don't we? And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we groan. And that's because we need, we need to understand a, a truth here that will come out again and again when we uh, discuss matters of Bible and theology, and that is the truth of something being already but not yet. There's a, there's a sense in which, in which certain truths are true already. We possess them already, but we do not yet have them in their fullness. For example, he discusses adoption. We await, we eagerly await the adoption as sons. Well, wait a minute. I thought Paul said back in chapter 8 and verse 15, not long ago, he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So he says in verse 18, We have received already the spirit of adoption as sons. We have already, in some sense, been adopted. Currently, we possess that right now. But, but he says here that we eagerly await our adoption as sons. So which is it, Paul? Do we have it? Have we already received it? Or do we eagerly await it and it's in the future? Well, it's an aspect of something being already true and yet not yet entirely true in every way. He says, first of all, that, uh, that we who are in Christ, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits, which is the Holy Spirit. Right now, we've already been adopted and certain things are true about us that we currently have, currently possess. One is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Well, in what way is the Holy Spirit first fruits of our adoption? Just thinking about 
the context in which we've been reading right here, there are a couple things that are uh, true and important for us to know that since we have died to sin, which held us captive, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. Right now already, we have the Spirit living within us. We've been set free. We are no longer captives to sin, and so we can serve God in the new way of the Spirit already. That's a first fruit. And being indwelt by the Spirit, we have received spiritual life already. And we have already received a worldview that is focused in such a way that we now walk and live according to the Spirit of God. We walk and live by the Spirit even now. Already we have this. And so it's important for us to remember that something can be already true and yet not in every aspect, not in every way. That's something that is not yet true of us. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We've been adopted already. We already have the Holy Spirit. We already have the first fruits of that adoption, the Holy Spirit. But there will come a time. There will come a time in the future when we will have the entirety of it. So we will be redeemed not just in our inner man, but in our outer man also. We will no longer be tempted by sin. We will no longer have sin of our own, that we will be made perfect. We will, we will see Him and we will be like Him. We will be as He is. We'll be holy because we have been made new in our outer man as well. So there are certain things that are true already that we already possess. And there are certain aspects of our adoption we do not yet possess. We will possess them in the future. And so... That shouldn't surprise us that there would be things yet future in the Christian life. I don't know what gospel was shared with you when you first heard the gospel and maybe you grew up in a Christian home and, and so you don't remember the first time you heard the gospel. But, but there is a way that uh, a portion of the church in the world communicates the gospel that says if you come to Christ you will have a better life. Everything will be swell in this life. You will be healthy. You will be wealthy. And things will work out well in this life. So just come to Christ so that you can have a good life. I want to tell you that that is not the gospel of the Bible. If you've been paying attention in your own life, you have noticed not everything has worked out swell. Maybe you don't have health. Maybe you don't have wealth. And part of that is because this redemption that we have, what the gospel promises to us is redemption of our inner man now and full restoration, full completion in the future. Christians actually are in the, in the time being for now are called to suffer. We're actually told that no, it won't get better because the world will not hate you. It used to love you when, when you were part of the world. And now as a member in Christ, it now hates you because it hates Christ. And so the gospel, this salvation that we have is a salvation of hope, not of current reality. He says, well, who hopes for what he already has? I don't, I don't hope I can find my Bible because I've got it right here. I didn't lose it. I don't, I don't hope that I get to see you today. I'm seeing you today. He says, we hope for what we do not see. 
And this salvation that we have, it has present realities. It has things that are true at the moment, but it has far greater realities that are true in the future. And so we see a connection between salvation and hope. That yes, I have been redeemed in my, in my inner man. I've been reconciled to God. I have peace with him. And yet I find myself sounding like the apostle Paul in chapter seven, when he said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Says Paul, the apostle. And I can relate. Probably you can all relate. Probably every Christian has moments when he he just aches to be delivered from this body of death. We wish we could see it now. And we hear about people who are maybe miraculously delivered from sins, maybe lifelong addictions, things they've been uh, spent their whole non-Christian life involved in or whatever, and God miraculously heals them and they never want to go back to that thing again. That happens. That's not the experience for most of us. Most of us still struggle. We still wrestle. We still have temptation. We still have sin. Most of us don't see the present reality of that full deliverance from those things and won't until we have our redeemed bodies. That's a matter for future blessing at the resurrection. It's not something that we see now. It's something that we hope for then. Christian life is so much about Hope. <clears throat> hope, not in the sense of, uh, boy, I would love to see that happen. I hope it doesn't get too hot today and the forecast says it's going to be 105, right? I can hope all I want. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope says, God promised this thing. I don't see it yet and I don't care. God said it would happen. It will happen. It's a firm conviction. It's a confident hope placed in God's promise about what he said he would do. Our salvation is about hope. And in our passage, there is a strong link between hope and patience. Hope and patience. Look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The more secure and confident our hope is, the more patiently we can wait in the meantime, I want to give a, just a personal <clears throat> testimony from my own life that's uh, not all that important, but it applies here. I'm not big on dieting. I kind of just eat what I want typically, um, not always, but I have recently been uh, trying to do intermittent fasting. And that's basically where you just have a closed period of time in the day in which you eat and you don't eat outside of that. For me, that just means I wait to eat until lunch. And that's really all it means. And then I finish eating sometime in the evening. But, uh, but I, I fast every morning. It's intermittent fasting, right? And some days it's very, very hard. I'll come to work and Rochelle will have just brought in some donuts or something like that. And I see other people eating them. And I really just want a donut and I like donuts. And, uh, but I'm not supposed to eat till noon. That's my rule I have for myself, just because I'm trying to do this intermittent fasting thing to try it. But I'll tell you what, if, if I don't know what is for lunch, or if it's the end of the shopping cycle and, and my wife is in Reno shopping right now, so I know there's no food at home, donut sure sounds good. 
And it sounds even better the more I think about it. Because I have no idea what's for lunch. I'm going to scrounge something up. Um, but if I know, if I remember that, hey, we, we grilled steaks last night. And uh, so I, there's some steak in the fridge. And I'm just going to put a little bacon in the pan. And I'm going to reheat that steak. And I'm going to have a glorious lunch. I can skip the donut for, for steak. Because I know what's coming. Because I know not just that it is coming, not just that I will have food for lunch, that I will be able to fill my belly, but that it's going to be great and I'm going to love it. And so since I know I've got this great lunch coming, I can skip a donut. I can skip all kinds of things. The more secure and confident our hope is, the more patiently we can wait in the meantime. So how does this apply to us? Paul said we wait patiently. Having this hope, we wait patiently. So what's the application? Feed your hope in Christ. Feed your hope in Christ. The way I, the way I resist those donuts is to remind myself I've got steak and bacon for lunch. I feed that hope of what I have coming. And, and the donut shrinks. It's not so wonderful. I can wait. Feed your hope in Christ. Don't focus on your struggle. Don't fixate on your weakness. Instead, remind yourself of what you have in Christ. Remind yourself of that meal that's coming. Remind yourself of your adoption as God's child. Both those parts that you already possess by the Spirit and those parts that will be yours when your mortal body is finally redeemed. Feed your hope in Christ. How do you do that practically? Well, sitting under the teaching of God's Word helps. Being here helps. Reading God's Word helps. Pondering, thinking about, reflecting upon what you have in Christ from God's Word helps. Feed your hope in Christ. And by the way, surround yourself with those people who will direct your mind that way, who will feed your hope in Christ. It's so easy to surround ourselves with people who either don't know Christ or even if they do, they have a real trouble fixing their hope on Him. And they think about the donuts all the time. They talk about the donuts all the time. So creation groans, awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. We groan in eager anticipation of when we will finally put off this sinful body and take up our glorified body. And amazingly and surprisingly, the Spirit also groans. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that amazing? We we see that creation groans, and we know why. We see the groaning in our own life, but the Holy Spirit Himself enters in, and He enters into that very groaning. I want to make a comment regarding prayer and God's will. Prayer and God's will. He says, He says, part of the glory of what the Spirit is able to do is because He intercedes, the end of 27, for the saints according to the will of God. According to God's will. Well, what is God's will? Well, very simply, we can look at it in two parts, two aspects of God's will. 
The first is His revealed will. In other words, what He has told us to do. What He commands us in Scripture. His expectations for us. What are the things that He requires of us. This is what Jesus encourages the disciples to pray about when He's teaching them the Lord's Prayer. And He says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, etc. He says, your will be done, speaking to the Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, in heaven, the redeemed saints and the holy angels obey God perfectly. They are holy. They do what God says. They're obedient to Him in all of His commands. And so when He teaches His disciples to pray that way, to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what He's saying is, I want to obey your word. I want my family to obey your word. I want my church to obey your word. May your will be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. He's talking about the revealed will, the word of God. But there's another part of God's will, and that is his decree or his, what I call his secret will. You can find this all over scripture, but I've got just a couple of examples. One is Ephesians 1.11, where Paul says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The counsel of his will that he doesn't let us in on. It's God's will. It's God's own counsel. What God is going to do, he is going to do. And so it's called his secret will because we don't know what it is until it comes to pass. And then we can see it. So there are a couple things to keep in mind about God's secret will or his decrees. First of all, it's secret. That's a shocker, I know. But because it is secret, because he doesn't fill us in on it, he doesn't tell us about it, God never holds us accountable for his secret will. You are not held responsible for God accomplishing his secret will. You will never be punished because you didn't know what God's secret will was. It was secret. He didn't tell you what it was. And secondly, it wouldn't matter if he did because God always accomplishes his secret will. 100% of the time, his secret will is accomplished. So you you can't even go against it. He always accomplishes it. Psalm 115 and verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Until we limit him? Until we threw a wrench into the plans by not doing his will? No. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now why do I bring this up? First of all, because it's in the passage, his will, the praying according to his will. But I, I, I tell you this so that you would be freed up in your own prayer life, so that you would be freed up in your own life from that overpowering and crippling worry about what is God's will for your life. And maybe you're going to take a wrong step. Maybe you're going to buy this house instead of that house. Maybe you're going to take this job instead of that job, and you're going to be out of God's will. It is not possible to be out of God's secret will. And so I want to free you up in that regard, not to be crippled by that. Earlier in my Christian life, I was debilitated by my concern that I would make a decision that would go against God's will. I want to encourage you with something. 
focus on God's revealed will. He's already told us what he wants us to do. He's told us how to obey him. But some of us look for that secret will that we can also obey. But I have a a tip for you. You haven't obeyed this one first. And you've got it in front of you where you can read it. Why would we want to go and, and ascertain in some way what is God's will that he hasn't shown us? When we've not obeyed us, the, uh, obeyed the one that he's already given us. So Christian, focus on obeying his will. Focus on doing what he says. He will take care of his secret will. Leave the unrevealed will to him. He will accomplish it perfectly and always, just as the Bible says he will. And that's particularly important in our context because of our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know what to pray. We don't even know what to pray. Paul doesn't tell us in this verse, the second half of verse 26, he doesn't tell us that's, that, uh, that we struggle to ascertain what his secret will is or that a Christian might not know what, his, what God's will is for us in the future. That's not what he says. He doesn't say might. He says, for we, Paul includes himself, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. He says we don't know it. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to pray. Maybe it's because the situation is so confused, it's so tangled, and you're trying to figure out how to pray for this struggle that's going on in a family, and you think, if I pray this, that's going to hurt this person. If I pray this, it's going to hurt that person. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what God's best is. I don't know, I don't know how to pray in this situation. We just don't know. We're too short-sighted. We're limited. We're too weak to know what to pray in some situations. And so what about those times? I think they may happen more than we might want to admit. Well, in those times, that's when you see the Spirit's help. The Spirit's help. You don't always have to know what to pray. The Spirit knows what to pray. He knows what to pray in your situation. In this tangled situation where you, you just cannot get your mind around what's the best way to pray about this situation. That's fine. The Holy Spirit knows how to pray in that situation. And so, so what do we do in that context? What do we do in that situation? Come to God genuinely seeking to see God work and submitted to God's will for what He will do and pray. And pray. And the Spirit will pray as you ought to be praying. But you're too ignorant, you're too weak, too short-sighted, too human to pray. And the Spirit prays how you ought to be praying. He intercedes for us. He intercedes for us in a way that makes up for our confusion. He will request from God what we should have been requesting. And more than that, as we pray in this impossible situation that we're facing, as we pray and we suffer, we don't know what to do. We go to God and and we don't even know what to pray in this situation, but we're praying. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us and He helps us in our weakness so that we begin to see Uh, This is best in this situation. I didn't see it before. I didn't see it before. This is best. 
This is what is most God-honoring. This is what would be best for that person. We begin to see, we get a little bit of clarity about the situation just as we come to God ignorantly praying and confused and just praying. And the Spirit works in us so that we begin to see what is good and right and best in that situation. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So what's the application? Pray. With a genuine trust in God's will, even though you don't know what that will in the future is, you trust Him. And He has His will. He has His plan. He has tomorrow in His own hands. And you trust Him. So you move forward and you pray. With boldness, with confidence in Him. And you pray. Submit it to Him. And you pray. And the Spirit will help you in your weakness. Our passage today is about groaning, the groaning of suffering and how we deal with it. The creation groans in anticipation of the day when Christians will be raised from the dead and the, and the creation will be freed from its present futility and subjection. And we Christians groan too as we continue to suffer the consequences of our fall. We live in a fallen world and we suffer the consequences of that and we carry around the body of this death And we live with the consequences of that. And so we groan. We continue continue to do battle against that old enemy sin that we carry around with us. The creation groans. The Christian groans. And amazingly, the Spirit of God enters in. And He also groans on our behalf. Groans right along with us. He's the perfect intercessor for us. He lives within us. He he knows our hearts and our minds. And He's the third person of the Trinity. And so He knows what God's will is. He knows how to pray in that situation. That we are too short-sighted or or just don't know how to pray. We're, We're confused and He knows how to pray in that situation. And His prayers are always answered. What an encouragement. The Spirit of God enters in and groans right along with us, but His prayers are always according to God's will and His prayers are always answered. What a helper we have living within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. What comfort we receive during times of suffering and hardship, knowing that one day we will receive the full fruits of our adoption. We have the first fruits now and one day we will receive the full fruits of our adoption as God's children when our bodies are raised to eternal and incorruptible life. And until that time, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us to minister to us in ways that we ourselves don't even know we need. Praise the Father for His Holy Spirit within us and for His Son's finished work on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world of suffering and we know that ultimately that's because of man and the, what man has done. And, but we do suffer the consequences as well. Creation groans and, and we Christians groan. Awaiting that consummation of the adoption when it's, when it's finished and complete and we don't carry around the body of this death anymore when we are set free from sin and temptation when we can worship you openly and fully as we, as we want to and as we ought to, that day will come. But it's, 
It's in the future. But Father, we praise you that you have given us the first fruits of that adoption, your Holy Spirit already. That we who are in Christ, we have peace with you because of what Christ has done. We have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account before you because of what Christ has done. We have this redemption. We have reconciliation. We are in right relationship with you because of what Christ has done. And you've seen fit to put your Holy Spirit within us. That we would know how to worship you. That we would have the mind of Christ. That we would have peace with you. That we would be strengthened. That we would have our mindset set on the things of the Spirit. That our, our life and our walk would be according to the Spirit. We have comfort from the Spirit. And when we pray... And we so often don't know how to pray. The Spirit enters in. And He Himself groans. But when He groans, He knows our hearts. And He knows your mind. And He prays according to your will. And He intercedes on our behalf. And He strengthens us in our weakness. Father, there are, there are those here or who are listening, who need strengthening. Who need strengthening. They are weak. I pray that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit, that they would go to prayer and they would receive that from Him. Father, we thank you for this first fruits of our adoption, that you have not left us alone, but given us your very spirit to live within us. We rejoice and we praise you and we take very great comfort from that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, I'm going to dismiss us and uh, we are um, trying to maintain social distancing and whatnot. So uh, try not to uh, congregate uh, too much, too tightly together, etc. But it's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for being flexible over these last couple of months as we've tried to do uh, what seemed best. And, um, and uh, we trust the Lord that he's been honored in this time. But thank you uh, for being here today. I want to close with these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.